Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Today I'm transporting us to Kangaroo Island in South Australia to meet international wildlife vet and conservationist Dr Chloe Buting, known as the Jungle Doctor. Chloe works on the front line of wildlife conservation, protecting rhino from poachers in Africa, treating koalas and other animals caught up in the devastating Australian bushfires and fitting prosthetic legs on elephants in Thailand who have been injured walking over landmines. Chloe's adventures, documented in her first book, Jungle Doctor, include darting giraffes by helicopter in Zimbabwe and working with Maasai communities in Tanzania. She's an advocate for the Earthshot Prize and a conservation consultant for Fauna and Flora, the world's oldest international conservation organisation, of which Sir David Attenborough is Vice President. It all began in earnest on a tiny speck of an island in the South Pacific, when an 11-year-old Chloe marvelled at the unspoilt beauty of her home, Lord Howe Island, and vowed to do whatever she could to conserve animals and the environment. And years later, on Take Your Daughter to Work Day, I spotted a 13-month-old Matilda joining Mummy hard at work in the Kruger National Park in the African bush. Chloe, it's so lovely to meet you. Gosh, what a life just from that intro. Oh, Helen, thank you so much for that very warm and generous info. It's an absolute honour to be here with you today. Tell me, first of all, a bit about Kangaroo Island, where you live with your husband and daughter Matilda. Yes, I mean, it's not a very well-known island, actually. And as I was listening to your biography of mine, I couldn't help but see a bit of an island theme, an accidental island theme there, if you will. But yes, I'm currently on Kangaroo Island. It's Australia's third biggest island, so it's a big one. And contrary to what a lot of people might think about Australian island and the images that might get conjured up, we're not a tropical island. We're down in the Great Australian Bight. The next landmass is Antarctica, so we have some really wild and woolly winters, but we also have some lovely, warm, pristine summers, particularly on our north coast, which is the coast that faces the Australian mainland, so it's a lot more protected. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the world, not very developed, lots of wildlife and a lot of subspecies that aren't found anywhere else in the world. So an absolute haven and for a wildlife lover like me, paradise. So that's what I call home now. And what a special place for your daughter to grow up too. I hope so. I really hope so. I remember giving my mum a lot of grief during my childhood, particularly my teenage years, for moving us around and living in obscure places and look at what I'm doing now. So I think I owe my mum a big apology for that one, which I've since given her because on reflection, it was the most wonderful childhood. And I really hope that Matilda treasures her different childhood as well. And what was the reason for obscure places? Was it to do with your family's work? A little bit, yes and no. My family was very small, so it was only ever just mum and I. And we were best friends as a consequence of that. And she was always a bit of a free spirit. She grew up in a conservative family and did all the things that you're supposed to do. But really, she was a wild child. So when I came along, it was sort of her and I versus the world. And we had some wonderful experiences. And Lord Howe was one of them. It was sort of this break from the mainland. It was the time period as I was coming to the end of primary school and about to start high school. And I was a little bit younger than my cohort. And mum wanted to take me for, I guess, the last adventure that was a bit prolonged before the serious years of high school set in. So Lord how it was. And it was just the most magical experience, for which I'm so grateful. And I was just lucky enough to return last week, the first time since leaving 21 years ago. So I took mum. And of course, I took Matilda and my husband came along too. And it was just the most special week. And of course, David Attenborough 
talks about Lord Howe Island, doesn't he? What does he say about it? He once said, and I've never forgotten it, that Lord Howe Island is so extraordinary, it's almost unbelievable. And I heard those words when I was young and living there, and I thought, wow, that must mean a lot coming from him. And I've just reflected on it so many times over the years, and I really have to agree with him. I'm not as fortunate to have seen as many places as he has, but what a glowing review from what a wonderful man. So yes, I concur certainly with that. It's a magical place. I mean, there are only 400 residents there and it's a World Heritage site. So there's, again, very little development and it's wrapped around this turquoise lagoon with a small little island called Rabbit Island in the middle of it. And I remember when we went to school, all the kids would stop at lunch and we'd race out to Rabbit Island and back and try and make it back in time for the bell. And often half of us would still be on Rabbit Island by the time the afternoon classes started. So it was a very unique couple of years and very, very special and formative as I later reflected on. So I'm sure it's responsible for the career that I have now and how incredibly grateful am I for that. Do you think the germ of the idea of wanting to be a vet, but was it that time, do you think, on Lord Howe Island where you started to really appreciate the beauty and think that perhaps you might want a career as a vet? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I didn't do much due diligence on the veterinary profession before I entered it. It was on Lord Howe that I decided that's what I would do. And in my mind, I was going to work out in nature with wildlife and protect ecosystems and the species that lived in it. And I've since found out there are a lot of ways to do that, not just as a veterinarian. And most classically, actually not as a veterinarian. So usually working as a biologist or ecologist or something of the sort. So I was fortunate to later find my niche at the intersection of veterinary medicine and wildlife conservation, as we'll no doubt talk about. But it was certainly ignited by those years on Lord Howe Island. I mean, I didn't wear shoes anywhere. I fell asleep to the mutton birds returning home from their great migration and they'd dive bomb into the earth, straight into their nests, which were these tunnels in the ground that coincidentally would also trip you up and almost break your ankles as you're sort of weaving through the palm trees on your way to school. So you're just so intertwined with nature there. And I just remember thinking this is all I ever want for my life. And it was a journey. So as I said, that was 21 years ago that we left Lord Howe, but it clearly had a huge impact on me. And I think now I'm 33 and it's all because of those few years on Lord Howe Island. It's incredible what you've packed in so far. Just before we leave Kangaroo Island, (laughs) I was just wondering what kind of wildlife do you see at Kangaroo Island? And she's going to ask the really daft question, are there a lot of kangaroos on Kangaroo Island? Oh my goodness. Um, Yes, to answer your, your question, there are a lot of kangaroos on Kangaroo Island. So I do think it's worthy of its name. We have a lot of kangaroos, yes, but we have a lot of wallabies. We have quite a few koalas. We had a huge population of koalas up until recently. We have the Australian sea lion, which is amazing, and these really beautiful cockatoos called the Kangaroo Island Glossy Black Cockatoo. And they've got these glistening red feathers. They're this enormous bird and then these sort of red-orange flame-coloured feathers on the underside of their wings. So we host so many different animals, not just unique to Australia, but unique to this island. So it really is its own ecosystem amongst itself and also a last refuge for a lot of different species as well. So we're very, very lucky. We've got a healthy population of echidnas, but again, it's a special kangaroo island variety that are actually blonde echidnas. So you get these little fair, yellow, whitey coloured echidnas walking around everywhere as opposed to on the mainland where they're much bigger and they're much darker, almost black. So it's a really, really unique place for wildlife, certainly, but one, not to jump ahead, that was really decimated by some catastrophic bushfires two, nearly three years ago. And since that time, our wildlife population dynamics have been changing. 
And I just alluded to that with the koalas. For instance, to give you an idea of the severity of those fires, we had 50,000 koalas on the island before the fires, and now it's estimated to be just about 5,000. So they truly were catastrophic for our wildlife as a whole. And our island is still only slowly recovering from that time. The fires look so devastating. Obviously, we only see them on the news here, but you live and breathe them when they happen. And I know that you've worked in the bushfires. In fact, it's approaching bushfire season now. So I would imagine everybody's holding their breath a little bit. But can you explain, Chloe, a little bit about the work you do during the fires and in the aftermath to try and rescue the koalas and save the animals that are affected by it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, summer has become a really scary time of year in Australia, I would say. And I would say that most Australians share my sentiments on that. And you mentioned we are coming into bushfire season now. So exactly, everyone's on high alert uh, on the wildlife conservation side of things. We're gearing up in terms of how prepared we are for potential events that are on the horizon. And that's bushfire. But also more recently, we've been encompassing a lot of floods in our summer season as well. So a lot of work is going into preparing for that season. And what bushfire season typically looks like is that you are on a roster. So for call-outs to respond to emergency events as they happen, but also everyone's on high alert watching for any fire systems coming through. And we make sure that our hospital is fully prepared. It's located in the middle of the island and well stocked that for anything that we might need to triage and treat animals for burn injuries and smoke inhalation injuries. So we have a huge dedicated team of wildlife volunteers and carers and first responders on the island as well. And they'll often be deployed to fire affected areas to bring in any animals that have been affected by the direct flames or by the smoke. And they come into our hospital, which is 24-7 during the emergency periods. And the vets work on shift work. And of course, naturally, the main injury we see are some of the most horrific burns and wounds that extend usually up the forearms and the hind legs and in severe cases covering the entire body of the animal. So really horrific cases. And of course, many of those animals as part of the triage need euthanasia on the spot. It's something that can't be treated. And we also have to think about the animal's welfare when it comes to dealing with not only animals, but wild animals. So these animals are not used to captivity and you have to think about the recovery period, which is long with burn injuries, six weeks at least that they'd need to be in captivity. And you really have to make that initial assessment when the animal is presented to you. You have to make the call to treat or not to treat and you have to do your best to make the right call in the shortest amount of time as possible. So once you've deemed that you'll be treating an animal, you start intensive burn therapy. So that includes debridement and washing, cleaning, surgical removal of any affected areas, bandaging, pain relief, anesthesia, and then daily bandage changes for at least the next sort of two to three weeks. So it's a very intensive process and a really harrowing one, a really difficult one to see and something that I really commend the whole team. It brings the community together and it's unbelievable how far people will go and just what they'll do in terms of their time, care and support for our native wildlife. So it is really humbling, but yeah, just a time that we all come to dread and hope that we'll get through another summer without anything nearly as catastrophic as what we had in early 2020. The fires are also destroying habitat too, aren't they? So obviously the animals are badly injured and many lost, but their habitat's being destroyed too. And I would imagine would take decades to recover. Absolutely. In Victoria, I'm fortunate to sit on the board of Zoos Victoria, which is first carbon neutral zoo in the world and does some really wonderful work with species breeding programs and reintroductions. 
And we're working quite intensely on a program for a little animal called a lead beater's possum. It's only found in two little pockets in Victoria. It's the Victorian emblem. So it's culturally very important and significant as well. And it's a pillar of the ecosystem, but there's less than 20 of these animals left in the wild. And they have such specific burrowing requirements that it's this old tree that's aged at least 40 years, fallen over and hollowed out. And it's all this incredibly intensely specific habitat that this animal needs. And this is just one example for the point you touched on, Helen, that is habitat loss. And it's not just about planting trees and waiting for that to recover because a lot of these animals are so highly specialised that it's not just something that we can recreate in the flick of a switch or even many, many decades. So in a lot of cases, so it's worth noting and and worth protecting this habitat and really catastrophic when we do lose it on Kangaroo Island as well with a lot of our animals, the glossy black cockatoos. They only eat this special type of nut from this special type of she-oak tree that's found on Kangaroo Island. And we've lost a lot of those she-oaks. So you may well be able to recover the species and re-release them. But if the habitat's not there, just as we're seeing repeated all over the world, you've got nowhere to put them and you've got a very big problem. Also, of course, habitat loss is affected by climate change as well. And I've seen some of that myself in Kenya. That must be a great worry too. I mean, I suppose when we think of animals in continents like Africa, we think of poaching and those being some of the big threats, but habitat loss is also a massive threat, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the two crises, I think, in terms of biodiversity loss and climate change intricately interlinked. So there's no doubt about that. The evidence supports that. And in fact, nature-based solutions to climate change are going to be one of our most effective tools in the toolbox when it comes to combating climate change and having any hope of reaching the targets set out in the Paris Agreement. So they are critically intertwined. And I think the more people that recognise this, the more solutions that we'll collectively be able to work towards and the more recognition it will get. But sometimes I feel like we're trying to do things in isolation, but really that's not how anything works, is it, from the ecosystem to human environments. So it's not something we can look at in isolation when it comes to this biodiversity loss and this climate change. It's something that needs to be addressed together. And that actually brings in my work with Fauna and Flora, which is the, as you mentioned in the intro, the world's oldest international conservation organisation. And we work under Sir David Attenborough conserving species, yes, but also wild spaces and habitats and kelp forests and marshes and mangroves and all of these really important carbon sinks in nature. You'd be interested in a couple of podcasts we did recently, one with the CEO of a bank called Triodos UK. It is a a global bank, but they're the world's first sustainable bank. And it's run by a conservationist who discovered that beavers are back in the River Avon for the first time since Tudor times, so almost 500 years. Is that just the most fantastic news? Yeah, and they believe that banking, it's nature-based solutions, as you say, that are going to help us try and win the war with climate change. So that was refreshing. And also on another podcast recently, I took a stroll in an ancient forest and learned about mycelium and hyphae and and all the what's going on under the soil. So I think you would have really enjoyed that too. That world is magical, isn't it? I'm fascinated with your work with elephants as well and prosthetic limbs in Chiang Mai. Tell us about the elephants and what's happened to them and the work that's going on helping them walk again, which is just amazing. It's really fascinating. I mean, elephants are very special to me. I was first fortunate enough to work with them in a first-hand capacity in 2009 when I was fresh out of high school and I spent a year in Africa working with elephants. So since then, I've been very fond of them. And then in my final year of veterinary school, 
I was fortunate to spend a little bit of time training at some select zoos around the place. And I did quite a lot of work with elephant anesthesia and, and a procedure with a team from America. So over the years, my interest with elephants has just been sparked over and over. And they're those majestic creatures that are so beautiful and the knowledge that they're storing and the way that they look at you and they're very unique. So to get to the elephants in Chiang Mai, in Thailand, it's very interesting working as a veterinarian because Buddhist culture doesn't allow euthanasia and euthanasia is a very big part of veterinary medicine in Western practice. So of course, anywhere you go, there'll be cultural differences, but this is quite a fundamental difference. And the reason that a solution was needed for these animals to get to why the elephants need a prosthetic in the first place. The unfortunate northern borders of Cambodia, of Thailand, as I'm sure you know, are scattered with landmines left over from years of turmoil and civil unrest. And of course, there are a lot of human victims still ongoing from these landmines, which are hidden and submerged, but also animal victims and elephants in particular that are remaining working in the forests, sometimes participating in illegal logging or just living out their days on the farms up there. So they might come across in the jungle a landmine and the injuries are usually incredibly extensive and significant. So the whole lower half of the limb is usually impacted and completely shattered and destroyed. And I think that would be considered a case in a lot of Western settings for euthanasia of this elephant. The surgery to repair the limb is incredibly complex and not without risks itself. Even anesthetizing an animal as large as an elephant is not without its significant risks, as I'm sure you can imagine. So it's a very technically challenging thing done in a very challenging environment to even get this leg to the stage where it would be potentially compatible for a prosthetic. And I don't think that's a decision that would be reached in many Western institutions, but in Thailand, without euthanasia being on the table, even for the most severest of injuries, people had to get creative. So this wonderful human doctor from Chiang Mai, and I won't dare try to pronounce his last name for you, but many years ago, he went up and saw the plight of these elephants and he'd been developing prostheses for human patients in Bangkok. And he decided to divert his attention to this first elephant case in Chiang Mai, Mosha. And he developed a really rudimentary prosthetic leg that she accepted and it was made of steel and really, really heavy, but it did the job and it supported her heavy body with this device. So it was incredibly beneficial for her quality of life. And since then, this hospital has expanded. It's called the Friends of the Asian Elephant Hospital and expanded to accommodate a number of elephant amputees, many of which now have this prosthetic fitted to them, which they wear during the day. And then we take off overnight while they sleep and they can get around without it. But after a number of years doing so, they'll have severe arthritis from all of the weight redistributed to the rest of their body, which is the reason that this prosthetic is sort of the walking aid during the day. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that there's a wonderful team in Northern Thailand that I've been very fortunate to work with, and they're doing some really unique work that I don't think you'd see anywhere else in the world, but it's a wonderful solution for these animals. And presumably the elephants, from what you say, adapt quite well. But I'm just wondering what it's like for you, Chloe. I'm kind of choked up even thinking about seeing an elephant being able to stand again and having a prosthetic limb, which we very much associate with humans, and being so close to such a majestic animal and helping. Does it really tug at your heartstrings, Chloe, sometimes? Is it quite magical? Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely, Helen. It's it's magical. It's heartwarming. It's heartbreaking as well at the same time, seeing them in this condition, such an emotional and intelligent animal as well. And then seeing that the relief that they're able to get from these prostheses. So it's all of the emotions in one, which I think is true of a lot of veterinary medicine, particularly with wildlife. But the ones that I take a lot of pride from and enjoy and satisfaction are cases like that, whereas a lot of cases, on the other hand, animal suffering induced directly by humans, such as in poaching incidences. And those ones I find incredibly difficult on an emotional level to deal with. They're a bit different to the elephant cases in Thailand, but it's certainly wonderful work that's done with those and very, very heartwarming indeed, yes. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the work that you do that's involved with poaching. I mean, I know that you have to protect elephants and their tusks, but I'm thinking about the rhino work that I saw you doing over the last few months in Africa. Tell me a little bit about what's involved there, because that looks pretty hardcore in terms of being on the front line of conservation. It certainly is. So rhino dehorning, and I'm sure a lot of people, most people if not, are aware of the plight of the rhino these days in Africa, which is really important to their ongoing conservation success and welfare, which is still the flip of a coin at this stage. So it really is a dire situation still for the rhino. So what is done from a veterinary perspective is just one prong in the many different arms that people are taking in response to this poaching crisis, which essentially started from almost nothing in 2008, peaked around 2015 and has slowly been coming down from that time, but peaked again just after COVID. And we're still dealing with a number that's approximately approaching every 16 hours on the African continent. So it's not acceptable. And at this rate, the poaching rate is still exceeding the birth rate. So in a lot of areas, we do have a huge concern for those rhino populations in the very immediate future which is why veterinarians have come into the picture in recent years in this emergency intervention space for the rhinos and primarily we're involved in dehorning them. And it looks incredibly graphic. It's horrendous. So it's completely pain-free, but what it involves is immobilizing a wild rhinoceros that's often not alone. So it might be a mother with a young calf. It might be a pregnant female. It might be a territorial bull. We don't know. But immobilizing this animal from a helicopter in remote terrain often and bringing them down where the ground team meets them. So the veterinarian and support staff. And we get to the animal, run to the animal. If it's not down recumbent on its side yet, if it's just sort of staggering through the bush, feeling the effects of the drugs push it to its side, put a blindfold on, put earplugs in, remove all of the external stimulus as quickly as you can, check that the breathing is okay because the opioids that we use are incredibly potent. One drop on your skin is enough if there's a little wound or a nick or anything, is enough to send you into cardiorespiratory arrest in about 60 seconds. So very potent drugs. So you have to check that the animal is breathing, give any reversal in the first sort of minute that you get to it if it's having any trouble or oxygen assistance. And then you get to work with the dehorning procedure. So what that involves is making a mark with chalk on the horn above the growth plate, which is the area that the blood vessels and nerves stop, taking a chainsaw and removing that horn by force essentially, and then grinding it down to smooth the edges and quickly clear out your equipment and recover the rhino by injecting the antidote into the ear vein, all within the space of about 15 minutes. And while doing so in the bush around other wild animals and potentially anything more sinister like poachers who are there for the same rhino as you, as was the case with my team and I a couple of months ago. So it's a very sort of dynamic, fast-paced environment, not without its risks, but incredibly important and proving beneficial, critically so, in this fight against rhino poaching and in this battle to save the rhino. 
Chloe, you mentioned there that there were poachers around. How did you know? Did you actually see them? And what kind of threat do they pose, not only to the animal, but to you if you're working? Because that horn to them is so valuable, isn't it? And I know that a lot of them are very brutal. Absolutely. And I mean, at Liwa, I'm sure you would have had a similar experience or just an awareness of just how acutely critical the situation is and how dangerous it is. So yes, the poachers pose a big danger to the animals, but also to us, to our team. The rhino horn on average, maybe depending on the size of it, it's quite variable, but we're talking maybe about half a million US dollars, which in anyone's language is a huge amount of money. So this is a commodity worth more than just about anything else on the black market or legal markets per gram. So it's incredibly valuable and it's something that people have been killed for. So farmers storing the horn on their property have been killed for this. People intercepting poachers in the field have been killed. Rangers on a daily basis are lost. So it's something that is incredibly dangerous to have in your possession and The couple of months ago that we had a close run-in, we didn't encounter them directly ourselves, but we were working on this reserve that hadn't had a rhino poaching in three years. We'd submitted a permit to dehorn because the time was up to repeat the dehornings, which is done approximately every two years, give or take. And then it's estimated one to two days before we got there, a mother and calf were killed for their horn. So the poachers had obviously gotten to this reserve just before us in time to get to this mother and calf, which was incredibly heartbreaking and disheartening because we'd been having such success with this reserve. And it goes to show as a reminder, an area that might be considered to be getting safer, quote unquote, can go backwards at any stage, at any time, and you must always be vigilant. So that was a reasonably close run and we had and a very disheartening one indeed that we weren't there in time for this mother and calf. So we all felt very responsible for that. I think dehorning is a sensitive subject and it's not something easy to even watch, even though I know that when you do it, it's for the animal's best. But can rhino live okay without their horn? They can. So the preliminary studies are still early. We're operating in an emergency environment. So I agree, this isn't something that's easy to see, regardless of whether you know the animal is pain-free or not. It's incredibly graphic. And every time I'm involved, I still have almost like an out-of-body experience sort of looking down on us, thinking, how did we collectively as humanity get to this stage where this is what we're doing to such a majestic animal? And this is something that's needed to be done. So that in itself is incredibly jarring and something difficult to process. However, when you've seen the alternative, so when you've seen a poached rhino, perhaps the calf has been left at foot, left alone, but not leaving the mother's side, or perhaps the job hasn't been finished and the mother wasn't even killed. She was just completely immobilized and unable to move and left there after the horn was harvested in extreme pain. So once you've seen that, it makes it all come into perspective and it becomes clear the reason why and it becomes a lot less jarring but you're right it's a hard thing to digest in terms of its efficacy the preliminary studies are really really optimistic so they're encouraging so there's been no increased rates of intraspecies fighting or mortality so dehorn rhinos aren't falling victim to rhino fights more frequently and no interspecies increase in mortality either so they're not falling prey or victim to any other species at a higher frequency than they would naturally so that's all really encouraging but what we don't know is socially how is it affecting them socially? How is it affecting them in these complex dynamics that we don't know enough about? And that may well be a factor. But right now, unfortunately, we don't have the privilege of time to wait and see. 
No, and also when you describe what they go through at the poacher's hands, I would imagine it's very painful, very brutal, often kills them, and something has to be done. I was reading that a hundred years ago, there were around half a million rhinos roaming Africa and Asia, and not so today. We're talking about a very small number, aren't we? About 16,000 white rhinos, about 5,000, 6,000 at best black rhinos. So a black rhino actually sustained a 98% decline, complete annihilation, if you will, uh, in the 30 years before 1990. So it's just staggering. The time periods we're talking about are so small. This is my lifetime. And the percentage loss that we're talking about is absolutely staggering. So what I'm concerned about is the baseline of normal or what we consider normal to shift and we consider this to be a normal reflection of our relationship with the natural world or the natural world. But 30 years ago, it's the same for so many species across the globe. This is not the reality. And I just get concerned. We might be changing our benchmarks in terms of what we expect because rhinos are a pillar of the ecosystem. We depend on them to make new habitats and bring in new species and turn over the soil and fertilize it all and regenerate forests and all of those things. So we depend on these animals for our own livelihoods and our own well-being as well. And it's that intertwined nature of the ecosystem and the rate of species decline that's currently happening, a thousand times the rate of pre-industrialized times, that's what's really concerning. I was reading actually that they're a symbol of conservation success. The more I read about all of this, the more fascinated I get. And you you explain that very eloquently there. I know, Chloe, something else that you're really passionate about when you're working away is getting veterinary students into the field and working alongside you. That's important, isn't it? It's so important to me. Obviously, it's a passion project of mine in a way because firstly, I was a beneficiary of going abroad and studying abroad and having these firsthand experiences in my year away in Africa following rangers in their work. So it was a slightly different type of work, but having these experiences were really, really formative. So providing that for future aspiring conservationists and veterinarians is really humbling But also I find it incredibly special because during vet school, there were no avenues for someone like me that wanted to work with wildlife in conservation out in the field in Africa and Asia, different parts of Australia. That just wasn't really a thing. And this is only eight years ago. So I felt really alone in those dreams and aspirations. I was at school with everyone who wanted to be, by and large, for the most part, traditional vets with dogs and cats, horses, cows all of those things, but no one really wildlife and exactly what I'd hoped. So I started to sort of doubt myself and my choice to go to veterinary school, wanting to work as a conservationist. And I think if I'd had these experiences that can give me hands-on experiences and develop my skill set in the field while also meeting people working in this space would have been absolutely amazing for me being in vet school with these aspirations. So yes, I love to provide this for students and I find that there's a whole amazing mass of people that are interested in entering conservation. A lot of them want to be vets and they want to work with wildlife and it's music to my ears. So if I can help in any way with that, with students, I love to. And I do that through an organization called Loop Abroad. So we take aspiring biologists, vets, conservationists all over the world with us to experience not just rhino dehorning, but to participate in conservation projects all over the world that are structured. It's certainly a huge passion of mine. Absolutely. That's really important work that you're doing there. And what else were you doing in your eight months abroad? What were the highlights? 
The highlight was taking my daughter with me. So I have an 18-month-old daughter, Matilda. She's wonderful. She's a little barefooted wild child. And I thought I was going to give her this wonderful conservative or, I don't know, just a normal upbringing, whatever that may be. I thought I was going to give her this. And now I'm, I'm robbing her, if you will, of this and taking her around the world with me. So the past eight months, she has come with me all over. We went to Thailand for work. We went to Europe and spent a lot of time in the UK for my consulting position with Fauna and Flora. And we spent some time in Africa, of course, working with wildlife. So moving elephants and rhinos and giraffes and wildebeest from one reserve to another for different reasons, for treating lions that are escaped from community edges and all sorts of different things. And she's been the best little companion I could ever ask for. And I can't imagine doing it without her. So that's what my past year has looked like. And doing it as a new mother has been, I would say, a really steep learning curve, an adventure, a little bit scary at times, and just so, so much more wonderful than I ever could have imagined. I don't think you're robbing her. I think quite the opposite, Chloe. I think you're giving her an insight into an incredible world. I thought my early times with my daughter when she was nine weeks old and I used to, at 6.30 in the morning, get a train from King's Cross in London and travel four hours up north to present a TV show. I thought that was fairly tough going, but the thought of you with an 18-month-old in the bush, <laughs> I've realised that was actually very easy to do. No, certainly not. I don't think anything with kids is easy and certainly not training four hours for, for a show. So no, I think different circumstances, but I take my hat off to any working parent these days now, having joined that elite club myself. It's a very lovely club to be part of, and I can imagine that you've got some fantastic photos too of your trips that she'll look back on when she's a bit older and look back on her adventures with you. And your husband's a wildlife vet too, isn't he? So she's really absorbed in that world. He is, you know, I always said, whatever you do, don't marry a vet, don't marry a vet. So I failed absolutely miserably at that. I went to a conference about eight years ago in America, wildlife conference, and there he was. So the rest is history and I married a vet, but I'm, I'm almost certain that Matilda won't want to be one. They always say the pendulum swings the other way. So who knows what she'll do, but I'll be very interested to stand by and watch and see what she becomes and support her in that, whatever it may be. Well, enjoy your travels with it in the meantime, and time really does go very quick. That nine-week-old is now 19, and I'm not quite sure where that's gone. So enjoy all these young times. Also, it's not just animals that you work with. You also work with some very special people. I met some of the Maasai on a trip to Kenya. You've been working with them as well, haven't you? For a number of years, I've been really lucky to work with a community in northern Tanzania. It's in a town called Lorbesoit, or just out of that. And this wonderful Maasai community lives out there, the very, very remote Maasai community. In fact, there's actually a beautiful little oasis near it. And I never in my life had seen an oasis that's like the ones out of cartoons and textbooks walking through the sandy desert with nothing around. And then you come across this turquoise palm tree little area. So that's a little bit about Lorbesoit. The communities, there are absolutely wonderful. I've been working with them since about 2015 on and off in different capacities. A lot of the work that we do is vaccination campaigns. So we go into the communities and we work with the elders and the locals and we deliver vaccines for their community dogs and animals. 
which is actually an initiative for community health. So they're rabies vaccines, which is a zoonotic disease. So it's shared between humans and animals, and that's the most common route of transmission. So if you manage to treat the animals and prophylactically treat them for rabies and potentially stem the rate of incidence in the human population. So yeah, we do vaccination campaigns in these really brightly colored regional communities. You see the kids running out in their cloth and the red and white vibrant colors, a little bit of blue in this area. It's just absolutely amazing against the backdrop of this red dust and Everyone is so friendly and welcoming and gives you one of their traditional dress to wear when you're working on their lands. And it's just such a wonderful experience. We then have a day where we do livestock outreach. So farmers bring their livestock in for their annual veterinary checks and their treatments, which is all funded and supplied. And then we work with the local community in the school to educate them about different ways to improve their practices or work on their practices and the animal welfare in particular. And then the highlight for me, at least, is taking the younger students on safari in a local national park to see the animals for the first time. So a lot of people don't realize in Africa, animals are primarily enclosed in very big areas, yes, in national parks and private game reserves, but these areas are usually fenced. And as a result, a lot of communities don't actually have the chance to see their wildlife. And I thought not only is that wrong, but how can you ever hope to work with the next generation of local communities on wildlife conservation initiatives if they They've never been afforded this chance to connect with their animals themselves. So yeah, that's a bit about what I'm fortunate to do with these Maasai communities in Tanzania. And I have to say, it's probably one of the most favourite parts of my work, just for that human element, certainly. Oh, it must be great to see their reaction when they see these animals for the first time. And as you say, you would imagine that they've grown up with them, but that isn't the case. And they're often in villages and areas where you don't have the big five or whatever. So to see their faces must be incredible. A couple of years ago, we had a a little 11-year-old that said after that she wanted to be a ranger and work to protect these animals, which was just incredible to hear. This was about four years ago, and she's still working towards that goal. And who knows what she'll become, but what a wonderful option to have. And that's what I believe conservation, sustainability, and success in the long run is all about, is community-driven and community-led. That's what Fauna and Flora believes. That's their approach as a conservation organization. It's empowering and building up capacity scaling up resources of local communities to drive these wildlife conservation initiatives while providing technical support, anything that may be needed from the sidelines. So that was just one student, but it was really lovely to hear and so much fun going out to see all the animals with them. Your skill set is quite extraordinary and it includes, I gather, darting from a helicopter. (laughs) Yeah, I'm certainly not the professional in this, but yes, it's certainly something that we're all trained in and that is always quite exhilarating. It depends on the pilot that you're with. I guess the local legend in Southern Africa is Jerry McDonald and he flies for most of the wildlife veterinarians, many of the wildlife veterinarians in the greater Kruger area. And he's wonderful and he can do anything with a helicopter. So you're really quite a close partnership, the vet and the pilot, and get into some really unique scenarios. We were just a few months ago looking for this one elephant. His name was Mr. Jabari. He's 33 years old and he has a habit of breaking out of the greater Kruger area into the local communities and causing havoc. And he's been collared for the last number of years and his collar was due for replacement because their batteries run out. So we were looking for him and Jerry was doing, I guess, a sort of acrobatics in the sky. We would drop down. We were flying just above riverbeds, looking under all the trees for him. We were going up over the mountains and 
it really is a unique office, I suppose, up there. And I was sitting in the helicopter thinking, what an amazing thing to do via Jerry, but it's just a privilege to fly along with him and get involved in this work. So it's funny what different people's days in the office look like, I suppose. And I'm just very lucky that this is mine. I'm thinking what it'd be like to be Chloe. I want to be you now. (laughs) It's extraordinary. (laughs) Please come and join me anytime, Helen. It goes for any of your listeners as well. I do love to take people with me. Oh, don't say that because I will be on a plane. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) When you're in the field and you're working closely with animals and, you know, such large animals, rhino, giraffe, elephant, have you had any heart-stopping moments, any close shaves? I suppose as a vet, I've got to ask you that. So many. My goodness, where do I start? I mean, I don't think it helps that I probably wasn't built for my chosen vacation. I'm not a fast runner. I'm not agile. I'm not particularly coordinated. And I would argue I'm not that good under pressure. So you would think that's a recipe for disaster. Certainly when it comes to the agility and the speed has gotten me into a few sticky situations because I'd say the main thing that you need as a wildlife veterinarian working in the bush is speed. So you just have to be able to outrun either the animal or with the animals that you just listed, the slowest person. And that's usually me. So yes, a particularly close encounter I can think of off the top of my head was a young rhino that we had just ear tagged. So rhinos in Africa will have little notches on their ears that they get at about 18 months old, which is an identification part of either a national identification or a local reserve identification. So we just notched this young rhino's ear and she was being recovered. She got up and she was standing and she was wandering off into the bush. Her mum was off in the bushes waiting for us to finish and she'd been charging us or giving us little mock charges, telling us to hurry up with her calf. And the calf was ambling off and then we all, well, I thought it was safe. Obviously, everyone else was a little bit more vigilant than I was. We were all packing up and this was quite early in my career. It was my first 18 months out as a vet and packing up, heading back to the car and then I just hear everyone's cases drop to the ground. And then I sort of blink and look around and everyone has completely scattered. Some people are just jumping onto trees and scrambling up the trunks. I haven't even moved from the spot where I am. And then I just catch the glimpse of the young calf, who's still pretty big, about a thousand kilos, mind you, running full pelt through the bush back towards me. And my heart just stops. I think I'm not going to be able to outrun this rhino. What am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to climb this tree. So I just start running. And I can hear the rhino getting closer. I can almost feel its breath on the back of my neck. The dust is being churned up all around us. I think my colleagues are yelling out at me. Nothing makes sense. And then I remember that someone once told me that they're not good turners. So if you sharply jump to the left or right, you should be able to get out of their way. And it worked. It actually worked. I called my friend who told me. I told him this story later that night after a few glasses of wine, but I jumped to the left or right. I can't remember. And the rhino bolted straight past me and it took a very long time to come to a screeching halt. And I was long gone by the time she turned around. So that was probably my closest shave to date, but there've been a few. God, I can imagine. I bet your heart took a long time to stop beating so fast as well. I just wanted to end on a end on a few of the other things you do. So you're an advocate for the Earthshot Prize. That must be a real privilege. And there's a lot more that needs doing, isn't it, to the natural world? Oh, a huge amount. But what a wonderful initiative by Prince William and Kensington Palace. I'm honoured to play a small part or to have been invited to be an advocate. And I just think it's wonderful because I've seen it gain speed since inception in 2021 and gain recognition. And it's almost like giving scientists and people solving the problems to our current crisis 
almost like superhero status or at least celebrity level fame. Obviously, we're not quite there, but creating this Earthshots Awards and giving them this platform in amongst the funding and the technical support that it provides is just wonderful. So I love every single thing about this and it couldn't be more critical. So over the next sort of seven years that's left of it, I really look forward to seeing all of the wonderful innovative solutions that people have come up with and the teams that have been presented for it and I just think it's incredible so yeah very proud to take part in that yeah and I bet you're very proud as well to be on the board of Zoos Victoria which you mentioned the first carbon neutral zoological facility in the world I mean that's a very special role to play as well and good to see that happening it's huge, isn't it? And I'm heavily pro good zoo. And that's a big question people often have, you know, zoos, bad or good. It's a complex answer. And why I said good zoo, so accredited institution is usually a great place to start. And actually, just very quickly on that, a, a report came out last year, a study on would we be better off or worse off with or without zoos and basing it on the terms of the current conservation of a number of animals. And we're vastly better off in current society with zoos and the work that they do in field in situ for species conservation. So there's multiple different prongs to a zoo's job these days than it was maybe 50 years ago. And that has a long way to come, particularly for certain institutions. But Zoos Victoria is really a leader in the field in terms of breeding and recovery and carbon neutrality and leading the way. We're reducing the number and types of species held in our institutions and focusing on field work. So I think it's a really exciting time for the zoological industry and the work that they do. And yes, very proud to sit on the board of Zoos Vic. It's my first board position. So again, a learning curve, but it's a really wonderful one. Great privilege. What does 2024 hold? 2024, that's a big question. 2024 holds a number of trips back to Africa to work on some very, very special dehorning projects there, which I'm very excited about. So a new population of rhino. Of course, we have this big news out of African parks that they've purchased the 2,000 white rhinos from the private reserve and they're going to use this population of animals to repopulate a number of parts of Southern Africa and South Africa. So that's a really exciting space to watch and one that I look forward to getting more involved in over this year. And of course, I'll visit my mother-in-law in Germany, take Matilda around with me, a little bit of work elsewhere in Central America. We do some work with sloths and the wildlife pet trade there. And hopefully some time at home on Kangaroo Island. So I'll be crossing my fingers that we continue to have a safe summer here in Australia. And I look forward on a personal note to continuing to build our house on our block of land on Kangaroo Island and revegetate the block with all of those lovely she-oaks that our glossy black cockatoos need to eat. So that'll be my 2024, I think, but I'll keep you posted. <laughs> keep me posted. And will you know that we've ended every podcast this season asking about risk. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken, Chloe? I've thought about this question and what a great one. And I've really enjoyed a lot of the past answers from some of your other guests. I reflected on it and I have to say, I think my biggest risk in life has been making the choice to do things a little bit differently. And what I mean by that is a little bit differently in my career. I went to vet school and everyone expected me to come out as a quote unquote regular vet. And I chose to pursue wildlife, working out in the field and doing it as a mother now with my daughter and navigating Having that slightly different life and slightly different career, working in an area that's so impactful and purposeful to me and now navigating that with my daughter, I think that's the biggest risk I've taken. I'm not yet sure how it's going to turn out, but I find it incredibly fulfilling and hope it's something I can continue for many years to come. 
It's been really wonderful to dip into your world. Every answer you've given has just conjured up amazing images for me. Your work's really inspiring, Chloe, and I hope you have a safe summer. I hope the bushfires don't take hold and that you do get to spend a little bit of time at home on Kangaroo Island building your house and sorting everything out for the cockatoos and spending some time at home with Matilda. But you really have been an amazing guest and I'm actually going off to book my ticket now. You did invite me, so that's okay, isn't it? (laughs) Please do. Well, you've been listening to Wildlife Vet and passionate conservationist Dr. Chloe Buting from her home on Kangaroo Island in southern Australia. What a story. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week, it's safe to say, much closer to home with another fascinating guest. So see you then.